The following podcast is intended for mature audiences. Listener discretion is advised. So, kids shouldn't be listening. Elton says fuck and shit a lot. Sometimes fucking shit, but rarely does he advocate actually fucking shit. You get it. Enjoy the show. The year was 1978. Or it is 1978. Both of those. And for a few months... In 1978, terror struck Pennsylvania. Yes, while everyone was getting the skinny on taking chill pills they caught on the flip side while they boogied down with feeling groovy, all while sticking it to the man. Yeah, and, and also, psych. And that's that's not how the slang worked. That was all nonsense. Anyway, people will die. Or they did die. All dying. All of it. For high school buddies Dennis and Arnie, the 70s are going to end waist-deep in mutilating hijinks at the hands of a pissed-off ghost wearing a back brace at the wheel of a four-wheeled murder machine, coupled with an oddly large amount of parking disputes. It's going to be a crazy, scary time. Who could have triggered this gory, hit-and-run insanity? Well, it's courtesy of the king of creepy weird shit, Stephen King. Buckle up at the last second, folks. This episode is going to be a magical, reassembling classic car that wants you dead kind of trip. Don't worry. If there are any accidents, the car can repair itself. Unfortunately, you can't. Countdown for blast off. X minus five, four, three, two, X minus one. Fire. Welcome to Elton Reads a Book a Week, the first podcast to record from inside the imaginary, possibly possessed, possibly sentient, flaming 1958 Plymouth Fury. Two things. One, if you don't know what the book Christine is about, that'll make more sense in a little bit. And two, I dare you to find another podcast that has made that claim before this one. Good luck. My name is Elton, and I read a book a week. The book this time around is the car enthusiast darling Christine. As I said earlier, courtesy of Stephen, can't write an ending to save his fucking life, King. Seriously, he's only been doing this writing shit for a hundred years, give or take. Resolve some shit in a way that makes fucking sense, Stephen. If you're curious, there's a few threads over on Reddit dedicated to this shit of him not being able to finish the fucking book correctly, or write, or have it make sense. One of those threads even tries its damnedest to make excuses for the guy. Why? He's a best-selling professional writer, guys. He should have he should have a hang of this shit already. All right, sorry, my rant's over now. Um, in the spirit of transparency, I, I have to tell you, I have a love hate relationship when it comes to Stephen King. Obviously, with that little rant you heard a second ago, the guy himself I feel is cool as fuck. The books he cranks out, yeah, hit or miss for me anyway. On top of that, I'm a buck the mainstream kind of guy and. Holy shit, is Stephen King mainstream. While, like, like he's the mainest. The mainest of the mainstream. He's had so many movies, shows, everything made from his stuff. He's practically a genre unto himself. 
as his so, 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 so many superfans can attest, my earliest memory of Stephen King was the commercial selling his library on TV. It's coming. More terror than you ever felt before. Dare you let it in your library. Stephen King's newest tale of horror, Needful Things. Now this beautiful $24.95 hardcover is yours for just $7.95 when you join the Stephen King Library. Enjoy Pet Cemetery, Cujo, Christine, Academy Award-winning Misery, plus King's newest books as soon as they're published. All in the original hardcovers, all at just $14.95 each, all with a cancel-anytime guarantee. Call now and Needful Things is yours, free for 10 days. If you're not terrified, return it and cancel. Otherwise, we'll send you a new volume every seven weeks, each with a 10-day free trial. There's never an obligation to buy. Summon Needful Things now and enter the unearthly library of Stephen King. That was a flashback and a half, that thing. Uh, Being a kid, I never joined the literal or figurative um, Stephen King library. Instead, choosing to invest my time in the outdoors, stealing porno magazines from a gas station uh, that was on the military base, and uh, also smoking cigarettes and doing drugs. Uh The good old days before the internet. So, anyway, I never really got into his stuff. I think I've read two of his books before this one, for real. Uh, One was Needful Things, I'm pretty sure. And the other was uh, 112363, or November 22nd, 1963, if you're into dates. Um, That's the JFK time travel book, which was pretty fucking cool, other than the method of time travel. I didn't like that too much. But other than those two books, no, never, never really got into anything of his. Um, I was just never keen on the guy, you know. Uh, but then a while back, an opportunity arose to get a gift set full of his books. It was a Chinese auction for a very good cause. So I threw in on it. You know, what the hell, right? Well, I fucking lost. I felt confused and humiliated. I cried. Buckets. Buckets. And buckets of tears, I, I tried to get my money back, you know? And, and boom, <laughs> everyone laid in with the uh, the guilt trips, you know? <laughs> uh, it was a cure for cancer charity, you fucking monster, was, was what I heard all day long. They were throwing things at me, rotten eggs, that, that I still can't explain the appearance of, where, the, where they came from. They threw heads of lettuce, and at one point, uh, a boot from, from nowhere. Someone went home without one of their boots. Anyway, that and the and the, the, the many people shouting variations of don't ever come back here again. Who takes money away from a good cause, you gross human being? You know, I was beginning to feel unwelcome towards the end. First, first, okay, hear me out. If I can't win, nobody wins. Not even a cure for cancer. And second... Never, ever give your money to charities. They only wave the possibility of winning a prize in your face and then pull the rug out from under you and give your money to deserving people and a good cause. People, I might add, who aren't you and worse still, are not even a prize for you. Or they don't even give you anything. What kind of shit is that? I'm kidding, of course. I just didn't win the gift set and some other stuff I bid on. I can't remember. But there was a 
a lot of really good food and a, and a lot of money raised for a good cause. So, I mean, did anyone lose? Not really. Ah, but that doesn't explain how I got this Stephen King set and how it ended up with me, uh, does it? No, it doesn't. Good luck finding out. I got a little hostile there for no reason. Too many carbs. No, luckily the gift set uh, of a lot of Stephen King books was won by a very, very generous and nice guy who was a longtime friend of mine um, that I've never been able to reason as to why he's still my friend. I'm kind of erratic and annoying, so you know he could probably do better. He gave it to me. Thank you, Anthony. Uh, you're super duper great in all and uh, all around uh, fantastic, sir. Truly. So, without further ado, let's get into the brain box of Stephen King, or short of that, find out a little about him. Stephen King was born on September 21st, 1947, in Portland, Maine. Some other famous people that were born in Portland, Maine? Should it ever come up in polite conversation or maybe a hostage situation? You don't know. Uh, other people uh, that were born there? Anna Kendrick, Judd Nelson, Tony and Emmy Award winner, amazing comedian legend Andrea Martin, and also Kevin Eastman. Uh, he was one of the guys who invented the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, which, to be fair, isn't as good as Andrea Martin, but... What is, really? No, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, though a pop culture treasure, is nowhere near the caliber of Andrea Martin. A treasure trove of legendary comedic gold. She's just amazing. Though I will admit, TMNT <laughs> is a very interesting and creative idea. Creation, I guess creation, if that's the word. Andrea Martin is pure goddamn magic. On her own. Uh, I understand I'm comparing apples to oranges here, but Andrea's apples win by a mile. Or she the oranges. They're both fruit, though. So, wait, so does that mean they're equal? Because, I, wait, because I'm saying they're not. But she wasn't created. She was, um, she, wait, no. She, wait, what am I doing? Her fantastic work is far superior to a bunch of irradiated turtles of unusual size with martial arts ninja training, who, let's face it, don't really need ninja skills, do they? Seriously, do they? Have you ever thought about it? Or, or did you just accept it? Why are they trained in martial arts? I mean, who the hell is stupid enough to stick around a six-foot-tall talking turtle at all? Let alone try and fight one. Let alone try and fight one and find out that it knows karate. They're fucking they're they're fucking monsters. They're fucking monsters. Green sewer monsters. Green talking muscular sewer monsters. Oh, and while we're talking about them for no reason, um, why are they wearing bandanas over their eyes? What identities are they keeping hidden? Are they usually blending in when they're not masked? You know, you know, as just your average. Six-foot-tall, muscular-talking turtle. What they usually do. Just just blending in. You know, I, I think you're getting it now. Ima okay. Okay, imagine they're being chased. Then quickly they duck around a corner, and, and they whip off their masks, and then the enemy or whoever's following them, uh, they round the corner, too, and they're like, Oh, hey, giant turtles. Did you happen to see four other giant turtles run by here? Maybe 
I don't know, carrying the exact same weaponry, you know, you're currently holding? Yeah, about that. I mean, there is no convenient place to stow that karate ninja gear shit. Their belts, maybe? Still, they're not hiding anything. Sorry. 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 Fucking tangents. I'm moving on. Back to Portland, Maine, which, according to the site visitportland.com, has a heady mixture of artistic and outdoor adventure. Our region is stylish and sophisticated, genuine and welcoming. A place where gray flannel and plaid flannel can coexist. What the hell does that mean? Is it is that some Maine-specific kind of racism? Oh, look, Ethel. It's one of the gray flannels. Look at them with their waxed beards, Ray-Ban glasses, and salvaged denim jeans. Salvaged denim jeans, Ethel. Hide the children. Satan is set up camp here on the streets of our little burg, and his demon spawn is marked by gray flannel. My, by God, by God, I never thought we would see this day. Yet, here it is. Here it is. Yesterday, we were in the godly presence of multicolored flannel bliss. Plaid flannel. Today, gray flannel, Ethel. Gray. Goddamned gray. Oh, sweet Jesus on a stick. Is that... Is that a nice macchiato? In their hands? God God has abandoned us, Ethel. We've been stranded with the devil. Fucking fuck. I'm sorry. I'll, I'll focus. I went too long about that. I, that was... Okay, fuck. I'm sorry. I'm tired and my mind is wandering. Okay, so from the land that brought you Anna Kendrick comes the King of Stevens. Born to Donald and Nellie Ruth Pillsbury King. That's a long fucking name. Uh, Donald, a merchant marine, and Nellie Ruth, a waitress, respectively. Um, his father was an alcoholic, and his mother was often sick. Yeah, just bluntly throwing that down. Stephen was their second son, their first being David, his older brother. Baby Stephen's entry onto the scene came as a surprise, as years earlier, Ruth was diagnosed as infertile, which uh, had led to the decision to adopt David in 1945. Donald, as I mentioned before, was a merchant marine. He was uh, frequently away from home. Yet, at the end of World War II, Donald did return home on a more or less permanent basis and took a job as a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. Although Stephen King has virtually no memories of his father, Donald was described as, uh, uh, well... Stephen described his dad as a man with an itchy foot, meaning he liked to put his pee-pee into any adult with a pulse. Okay, maybe not any adult. Stephen's mom would say he was the only man on the sales force who regularly demonstrated vacuum cleaners to pretty young widows at 2 o'clock in the morning. Ouch! Mama King coming in hot with the infidelity jokes. Just two years after uh, Stephen was born, Mr. Daddy Donald King disappeared and was never heard from again, leaving to get a pack of cigarettes and never coming back. I just read that in the research that I did. Uh, Not sure if that's totally true, but if it is, fucking wow. Um, If you're a regular listener, you might be recognizing uh, an emerging theme in this podcast, that being a terrible father can lead to your offspring um, being a great creative artistic type person. So... Obviously, the lesson here is, abandon your kids. They might just surprise you and turn that gut-wrenching 
soul-scarring trauma into being the next Stephen King or Charles Dickens. Uh, no. No, please don't ever do that. Oh, and please never take parental advice from a podcast, especially this one. Uh, namely because it's about books, not about parenting. And also, uh, go talk to actual parents or, or maybe even better still professional counselors, you know, if you really are having that kind of trouble, you've been warned, uh, disclaimer and stuff, all that. After Stephen and the rest of the Kings were summarily abandoned, like day old bread or donuts or some other easily perishable food stuff, I don't know what I'm saying. They, uh... They didn't stay in one place very long. Moving in an, moving, goodness, in an effort to get work and stay afloat. It was during this time that Nellie, uh, Ruth Pillsbury King, long name. It was during this time she turned to the occult as a way to cope with the uh, increased stress. This would have, uh, this would later have a huge influence on Stephen's future career. She would uh, say later in in an interview that uh, Stephen's success, although. Undoubtedly, due to his own unique and amazing talent, was also partly the result, wow, of a deal she made with Satan when uh, Stephen was very young. Recounting the ceremony and uh, summoning of the ruler of demons for a magazine article uh, a few years prior to her uh, untimely death, she said this. I had been dabbling in the dark arts for only a short time prior to that evening, so my experience was very limited. Still, I decided to try combining different conjuring spells. That night was eerily quiet and foggy. I'm unsure of the exact combination I used as I had several volumes of spells surrounding me. And I was reading from several different books at the same time. It was late. I was kind of drunk. And I was just throwing any old invocation at the wall, you know. I'm mumbling one of the passages from some book or other when all of a sudden a black smoke appeared in front of me, followed by the scent of brimstone. I was shocked, as you can imagine. The Lord of Darkness was before me in all of his blackened soul grandeur. He said, Oh, how's it going? You doing all right? How's the kids? Oh, they're doing all right, Father of Lies. Thanks for asking. Little David is getting over a cold he just couldn't seem to shake for, um, gosh, almost a week. We thought it was the croup, but with some bed rest, soup, and a humidifier, he was right as rain. He's a trooper, that kid, so he's better now, which is good. Oh, and uh, we're all pretty sure baby Steven, uh, he saw his buddy slam dance the business end of a locomotive. So, yeah, that kid's dead. So, there's that. Steven seems to be burying the memory and pretending that kid never existed pretty quick, so we're just leaving him be. Needless to say, it's been kind of a mixed bag around here lately, but uh, doing all right overall. Could be worse, though. Oh, shoot, you know. While I got you here, Beelzebub, I was wondering if maybe were it possible that I could make a small request or trouble you for a favor or what have you. Oh, yeah, sure, Ruth. Let her rip. I mean, you conjured me, you know? I'm here to help out. Oh, geez, thanks. Listen, I won't take up too much of your time with this, really. Oh, take your time. Seriously, I've got fuck all to do over in hell. You know, I'll let you in on a little secret. It's just, uh, it's just billions of souls sitting around with nothing to do. 
The perfect hell is boredom. Are you kidding me? No, no, it's true. Just sitting around. I would never have guessed that in a million years. You heard it here first. <laughs> so what's this request? Oh, gosh, right. Right. Well, listen, with all the bad stuff that's been happening to our little family here and with Donald up and leaving us, plus all the moving and being poor, you know, I really just want the kids to turn out okay and have good, meaningful, and fulfilling lives. That's my request or wish or whatever. Ah, uh, well, I can't guarantee that their lives will turn out any... Then just good jobs. Can they just have good jobs then? Oh, sure. Oh, okay. Yeah. Done. So that's it? Just like that, I thought I'd have to sacrifice a goat or something? What? No, no, no. No goats. What do people have against goats? Anyway, better still, why do they think I like goats? I'm sorry. There will be a caveat, though. You know, I mean, I am, I am the devil, so we can't all be good. Part of the job. I mean, that's just part of what I do. Uh, you please. understand. No, not their souls. Gosh, I'd hate to have to do that to them. They've already been through so much. I'd hate to add mom sold our souls to their already full plates. Oh, hey, I know what we can do. Can I offer you Donald's soul? Yeah, let's do that. Take Donald's. If you can find his sorry ass. No, he'd have to knowingly be in on the deal. Plus, and this is between you and me, there's too many souls in hell anyway. Not gonna lie, I can't stand to look at them all. Just milling around, bumping into each other. And then eventually they're all staring at me, waiting for me to tell them what to do. I don't need any more whiners. No, thank you. No, the caveat will be, uh, well, their jobs. Oh, dear. They're gonna hate them and blame me, aren't they? Oh, I have no idea about that. I just set up the circumstances, and that's as far as I go. No, they're just gonna... They're just gonna have an awful spin, you know? Something that's just... Ugh. This is gonna be awful. Oh, gosh. Heck, all right, Satan. Lay it on me. Okay. How about for baby Steven? He'll be a... I, I don't know. Um, a writer. Well, golly, that's perfect. He loves to write. But... But he can only write scary, creepy shit. Well, that's not so bad. It's not optimal, mind you. But like they say, it could be worse, I guess, David's right? going to be a tax collector. God damn it, shit! Uh, I'll just end it right here and say nope. No deals with Satan. She never uh, entered into the cult. Just people... Ah... <laughs> uh... It's just people seem to... Anyway, Ruth seems to have been a really good mother and nice lady. Uh, she had no dealings with the devil. I've, I've just been watching a lot of Stephen King interviews and stuff, and everyone tries real hard to attribute his stories and subject matter to some creepy childhood creepy shit. So I thought, hey, why not a deal with the devil? I apologize. Nellie Ruth King often... Often? Often? Often. Nellie Ruth King often relied on the kindness of relatives while searching for work and not special favors from Satan, asked during uh, cellar conjurings. Uh, constantly on the move in the uh, the nine years after Donald King's untimely departure, 
Um, not death. You know, he just never came back. Went for cigarettes and never came. What kind of prick? Anyway, uh, Ruth King, uh, she preferred to be called by her middle name, uh, Ruth. Um, Ruth King and her sons found themselves living in Chicago, uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana, Malden, Massachusetts, and West uh, De Pierre, Wisconsin. I don't know if that's right, but whatever. Sometimes financial circumstances forced her to leave little David and Stephen with extended family for weeks or months at a time. At times, Ruth King was forced to work two or three jobs at a time to put food on the table for her tiny family. Um, and often, sometimes, uh, when babies, when babies, often, uh, sometimes, whew, when babysitters were too expensive, the boys were left alone reading to each other to uh, pass the time and stay out of mischief. Eventually, the family would settle in Durham, Maine, when Ruth's sister, Ethelyn, uh, gave her a house in which to live in exchange for helping care for her ailing parents. After Stephen's grandparents passed away, Mrs. King uh, found work in the kitchens of Pineland, a nearby residential facility for the mentally challenged. On top of all the moving from place to place, Stevie Stephen King was often sick, making his childhood even more of a shit show. He would um, miss most of what had been his first year in elementary school. It wasn't the lay in the bed kind of Fred Savage sick, you know, like in The Princess Bride. Uh, it was a case of the measles and repeated bouts of strep throat, uh, which then led to painful ear infections that kept him either in bed or in a doctor's office. The treatments for those ear infections, by the way, um, well, they involved repeated lancing of his eardrum. Ugh, that left uh, King traumatized. No shit. And just to pile on more shit because abandonment, measles, and having your fucking eardrum cut into all the time, when that's not enough. Uh, one particularly horrifying story occurred when he was just four. Um, I wasn't kidding about that part uh, in the made-up satanic powwow with Stephen. Uh... I bet you didn't think you'd hear a sentence like that today. In Dance Macabre, Cabra, whatever, uh, a 1981 nonfiction book written by Stephen King on the art of writing, he states, According to Mom, I had gone off to play at a neighbor's house, a house that was near a railroad line. About an hour after I left, I came back, she said, as white as a ghost. I would not speak for the rest of the day. It turned out that the kid I had been playing with had been run over by a freight train while playing on or crossing the tracks. My mom never knew if I had been near him when it happened. And although King claims to have no memory of the incident, novelist and psychiatrist Janet Jepsen told him, You've been writing about it ever since. Holy shit, I don't even know what to do with that. And you thought your childhood was fucked up. <laughs> I mean... Okay, well, maybe not yours, but, but you. Yeah, you. You're yours, right? Surely, right? You know who you are. Respect. Hey, guess what? More shit piled on top of the Nordy Mountain-sized shit pile for Stephen King. He was also bullied at school. As any nerd worth his stripes was, he was bullied and picked on for being overweight and ugly. Which, to be fair... He kind of was, right? I mean, let's be honest. The guy's a creepy troll who deserved every bit of ridicule. Weird, geeky, fat, young, young Stephen King just... Ugh. No. No, of course not. Bullying is complete shit and shouldn't happen. I think uh, we'd be a lot further along in the universe if uh, 
We recognized our differences as creative variations on a theme and saw them as strengths. Know what I'm saying? Diversity is good. Uh, Besides, you get a lot less revenge killings that way. His being bullied led him to believe he was an outsider. This became an idea that he visited many times in his prolific career. He would use... um, he would use that to great effect in his work, including Christine, which we'll talk about shortly. Despite his difficult childhood, uh, King developed a love for reading and writing at a young age. Um, as a boy, uh, King found a box of fantasy horror fiction books and stories that had once belonged to his father, and he read them all. At the time, King was seven. Um, by the time he was seven, sorry, uh, he had begun writing his own stories. Uh, he enjoyed watching science fiction and monster movies, you know, kid stuff. Uh, from his mother, King developed a fondness for horror. My childhood was pretty ordinary, except from an early age, I, I wanted to be scared, he told NPR. As a child, he secretly listened to a radio horror show called Dimension X and dreamed of boogeymen. He began writing stories when he was just six years old. When in school, he wrote stories based on movies he had seen recently and sold them to his friends. This was not popular among his teachers, which is ridiculous. And he was forced to return his profits um, when uh, they discovered his little business. Uh, So discounting his rough professional ambitions of pimping his stories to his friends, Stephen King uh, began his actual writing career in January of 1959 when he and his brother decided to publish their own local town newspaper named Dave's Rag. Stephen's brother Dave was bored with the high school shit. Uh, He liked to be active all the time, a kind of a restless character. To escape the boredom, he he started a newspaper called Dave's Rag. Uh, Dave engineered a a drum press with the available components and developed a reliable printing machine. Uh, They created a paper that sold for about five cents an issue and uh, developed a circulation of only 20 or so people. Not so not bad pre-internet or any other kind of net days. I mean, have you ever tried getting people to share shit online? It's like asking them to shoot a child and it wouldn't even be their kid. Unbelievable. Kidding, of course. Uh, Sharing things online is nothing like shooting a child. If anything, it's like asking someone to point a finger at a picture and say, Hey guys, look at that picture. But you know, on the internet. Now that is a call to action. Quiet, you. I almost understood that. Okay, well, well, some, some of that. Well, if not some, then not all. Then not all of, uh, of that. Did you get all that? What the fuck? Oh, stop it. He's trying. Moving on, Stephen started writing very young, as I said before, writing stories like Jonathan and the Witches, uh, which he did at age nine. Land of a million years ago when he was 12. Great title there. Um, Self-published, obviously, Dave's rag was about local events, and uh, Stephen would often contribute. As a young boy, Stephen was an avid reader of E.C.'s horror comics, which uh, also provided the genesis for his love of horror. He loved reading Tales from the Crypt. Uh, that was an awesome show on HBO when they did that back in the day. They should redo it. It would be great. Did you hear that, HBO? I know you listened to this <laughs> podcast about books from a guy in Pennsylvania. Just make the show again. Um, I think the guy who did the voice of the Crypt Keeper is still alive. Why am I going off about this? Um, Stephen published a short story called Jumper in that paper. Um 
Dave's Rag, and King credits The Lurker of the Threshold, a short story uh, collection by H.P. Lovecraft, as the catalyst to him becoming a writer. He attended Lisbon Falls High School, uh, where he was a member of the school newspaper and literary magazine. Man, their school has a literary magazine. How fucking neat is that? Did my school... I don't remember. He would continue to self-publish stories all the way through high school. For instance, the story Codename Mousetrap was published in a school paper. Before that, Stephen sold his first story, published in a real publication. Uh, it was called I Was a Teenage Grave Robber, published in Comics Review in 1965, later reprinted in Stories of Suspense, also in 1965. His first professionally sold story was The Glass Floor, which appeared in Startling Mystery Stories in 1967. How is that different from getting paid for the stuff before is a question best left to someone who knows the fucking difference. I do not. I thought once you got paid for something, you were a professional. Maybe it's different in the novel. Game. Story. Selling. Game. I don't know. Graduating from Lisbon Falls High School uh, in 1966... King would go on to attend the University of Maine, where he studied English and creative writing and also sold his first thing. He's doing a lot of selling. I don't know. Uh, he started working on his first novel not long before selling uh, The Glass Floor um, back in 67. During his freshman year at the University of Maine, uh, Stevens started writing his first novel, The Long Walk. A story set in a dystopian America ruled by a totalitarian and militaristic dictator. However, The Long Walk wasn't published once King finished it, but he continued writing both short stories and novels. King dropped out of college after two years to marry his high school sweetheart, Tabitha Spruce. The couple had three children together. Um, he'd been married. Um, King has been married. My God, I can't speak. King has been married to Tabitha Spruce. For over 50 years. God damn. They live in Bangor, Maine. Isn't that sweet? 50 years. Good on them. Um, jumping back a little, uh, King worked a variety of odd jobs to support himself and his uh, family, including janitorial work, uh, truck driving, and teaching high school English. <laughs> Weird. All the while, he continued to write in his spare time, pursuing his passion. He wrote four novels that he submitted to publishers. All were rejected. By the winter of 1972 or 73, uh, Stephen King and his wife Tabitha King were living in a double-wide trailer west of Bangor, Maine. Um, I always think of uh, King of the Road uh, when I hear the Bangor, Maine. Anyway, King of the Road, Stephen King of the Road. Uh, what the fuck? Okay, Stephen King was teaching English in a nearby town of Hampton. And their situation was worse than ever. He was only 26 years old when he started to write Carrie. The story goes that while cleaning the walls in the girls' locker room, he unexpectedly stumbled upon an unidentified metal container. Its size indicated that it was not meant for holding paper towels, but rather served as a dispenser for female sanitary products. This discovery starkly contrasted with the facilities in the boys' locker room. As Stephen King observed... Because boys don't need that shit. Coincidentally, he recalled reading an article in Life magazine several years ago. The piece explored the occurrence of poltergeist phenomena and telekinetic activity among young adolescents. 
evidently, there was supporting evidence to suggest that girls in their adolescence in particular may possess such abilities to be more vulnerable to their development during that phase of life. Boom! The impetus of the story was born. Or imagined. Created? You get it. He got the idea. He couldn't figure out how to fit it all into a tidy, concise narrative suitable for publication in a magazine, though, which was where he was getting his story-writing nut, you know. He experienced the greatest achievements in the magazary, 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 in the mag, he fucking magazary world. He achieved his greatest successes selling to magazines, and he couldn't fit this story in there. Um, not without adequately developing the characters and the setting and the plot, it would have resulted in a jumbled short piece. Dissatisfied with its progress, he opted, you know, to throw it the fuck away. In Stephen King's memoir, A Memoir of the Craft, he shares an anecdote about the day he discarded the manuscript for Carrie and returned home from his teaching job to find his wife engrossed in reading its beginnings. The crumpled and ashy pages had been salvaged by Tabby, as he affectionately called her. By what some might call sheer luck, Tabby stumbled upon the initial draft and recognized its potential. She believed that Stephen King should continue writing and complete and complete the story, seeing something special in it. Tabby provided her assistance in refining certain details, such as the timing of women's monthly cycles and the inner workings of schools. Initially unsure, Stephen King drew strength from his wife's belief in him, giving him the courage to persist with the story. Though at this point, reality has been telling Stephen King's dreams to straight up fuck themselves, and it would continue to do so for a good for a good while. Uh, Stephen King was rejected by 30 publishers before his first novel, Carrie, was finally accepted by Doubleday in 1973. To be fair, not all 30 rejections were for Carrie, or might not have even included Carrie. Just all the times before, in general. Does it really matter? 30 times is 30 fucking times, isn't it? His first accepted and published novel, Carrie, published in 1974, uh, was a critical and commercial success, and it launched careers, and it launched King's career as a best-selling author. Um, he would become one of the most successful and popular authors in the world. Though, uh, though, when he first published, he wasn't out of the woods yet. No, it just so happens that after the success of Carrie, Stephen King's entire family decided to leave him. His wife. Children, in-laws, everybody. They just uh, they went out for cigarettes and never came back. That's not true. But he did have some difficulties after the initial publishing. Um, there are a few reasons why King's early work was rejected so many times. First, his writing style was unconventional. Uh, he used a lot of profanity and violence in his writing, uh, which was considered wasn't really what was in mainstream fiction at the time. Second, his stories were often dark and disturbing. <laughs> no shit. Which turned off some publishers. Um, finally, uh, King was an unknown author with no track record, which made it difficult for him to get his work published. So it took a while for the King Colossus to build into the brand it is today, of course. You can't skip the obscure nobody, period. It makes or breaks any creative type person. It's what 
I'm in right now. Help me crawl out of it by joining my Patreon page to get extra stuff. Link in the description. Smooth. Like it was on X-Lax. If I am not to pimp it, who will? Moving on here. Despite the rejections and the shit he caught for his writing style, King never gave up on his dream of becoming a writer. He continued to write and submit his work to publishers, and eventually his perseverance paid off. That's the fucking lesson to take from Stephen King's life, people. Persevere. Never give up on your dreams. And and also, you know, have a have a hard luck life to draw from to to for your dream, the wherewithal to see it as a reservoir of creative inspiration and not the foundation for a substance abuse problem. Have a also have a it also have a fuck ton of uh, unique talent and skill coupled with a supporting family and social network to uh, to help nurture and cultivate it. And that's all. Just just get that stuff and get, and also get rejected a lot. So confidence too. You need the confidence to overcome the rejection. You know, pick that up. You know, wherever you you get uh, confidence from um, somewhere like. I don't know, take a class or something. They have classes, right? I, I don't know. But but all you but do all that. All of that. And discipline. You're gonna need that too. Shit. I forgot. Rigorous discipline to create despite the lack of attention and people pushing you to oh shit. And consistency. That too. You should. Um you'll you'll need a lot of sh- you'll need a lot of that shit. A lot of shit and a lot of luck. But just get all that. And also, and also, never give up. Easy takeaway. You're welcome. Bite-sized. You're welcome. Carrie was a huge success, kind of. Uh, Carrie was happy to finally get a publisher for his novel. However, the hardcover edition only managed to sell 13,000 copies. Aw, shucks. Which uh, was decent for a debut novel, but didn't pretend, you know, him being a literary sensation. This was when Stephen King turned to Satan. More, more to the point, holding rituals conjuring the lord of the unclean. Frustrated, frustrated. Uh, he felt betrayed by the world around him. So he, he performed a ceremony in the basement of his family as the story goes, Stephen had just finished his incantations and playing a, and, and playing a Motley Crue album backwards uh, while waving his hands through the flames of black candles. When a bright, bright light briefly filled the basement, uh, there was a black smoke. It was followed by the smell of brims, brimstone. Then suddenly, a symboline figure appeared before him. Oh, hey, Stephen, how's it going? Nice basement. Oh, great dark lord, Zimzalabim, Zamba Zaladu Zaladim, all hail the giver of sin that released man's oh, inner... Oh, wow, you have like a whole thing you're going to do. <laughs> That's cool, I guess. Oh, wow. Is that a Tupperware pitcher full of blood? It's a... Actually, it's V8 mixed with some Hawaiian punch. And and how is that? It's kind of gross, actually, not going to lie. Should I have uh, gotten some real blood? Ew, blood. No, it's just a mess. It's also impossible to get out of anything. Oof. Pray it never finds its way into cotton. Say, how's your mom doing? Mom's fine. Oh, that's great. She's a nice lady. Yeah, so so cool, man. Um, What can I do for you, Stephen? Oh, Satan, I feel like such a failure. It's like it's always one step forward, then 90 steps back. My progress as a writer, 
It's like like it's always being boned right in the ass. Yeah, wow. That's a lot of steps back. It's one now. roadblock after another. I thought my career was going along great. I got my novel published, which oh, I don't wow. have to tell you is the biggest hurdle when it comes to being a novelist. I was thinking, yay, I can finally support my family doing something I love. Then I get a call and I'm told yeah. it's not selling like it should. Yeah. Everything seems to be spiraling. I'm at my wits end with my balls on the table. Oh, wow. What should I do? Yeah, that sounds terrible. Hey, hey, listen, Stephen, I, I understand. Sometimes things look darkest before the dawn. Maybe that's all you need to do, right? Ride out that darkness, man. Things will turn around. Well, I'm pretty sure they will. I'm not in publishing. Oh, hey, hey, I'll tell, I, I'll tell you what. I, I'll tell you what I tell every new arrival when, they, when I greet them at the flaming gates of hell, okay? Um, well, well, after the meet and greet mixer. And the two-week orientation. And all the safety videos. And all the forms that have to be filled out. And after they're done with all the screaming and the trying to escape, I say, look, when life gives you lemons, okay, what do you do? With with what? What lemons? In hell, with lemons. Like, what do you do with lemons in hell? What does one do with, with hell lemons? Is that what you're asking? Uh, no. No, I mean in general. Oh, because you were talking about actually being in hell. I... I thought that that was where the lemons were, the lemons you were talking about, that that was where they are. In hell. No, right. No, I, I see how you could think that. No, I was just, generally, if life gives you lemons, though, I mean, if you want to get technical, everybody in hell is dead. But we're not we're not splitting hairs here. So, so in general, you know, life gives you lemons, you... I don't know. You make lemonade, I guess, with the lemons. You make lemonade with the lemons. I've heard something about that before. I'm not sure where, but... Ugh. Why would you make lemonade, Stephen? Lemonade's terrible. It sucks. Honestly, why would you do that? It's disgusting. I think that that would actually make hell worse if you made lemonade with your lemons while you were there. What, what are you thinking? What? What just are are we talking about being in hell again? I thought you were speaking generally. Was this a location specific kind of pep talk? It was gonna be awesome until you brought lemonade into it. Ugh. Even thinking about it, my brain is puckering. Now all I can think about is how terrible lemonade is. God man. I'm sorry. You turned me off to this whole encounter, Stephen. I think you're gonna have to figure out your stuff on your own. Oh man, whatever Satan! You, I'm whatever so you sorry. Were I really don't about, know what just all happened. that. I have to go wash your lemonade out of everything. You really ruined my day, Stephen. Seriously. Uh, I'm sorry, old Nick, old pal. Listen, I don't understand what happened, huh? We were talking about how my career was taking a deep dicking, and then, then there was a pep talk or the start of one. I think what what? How can I fix this? What happened? Lemonade happened, Stephen lemonade. I hope you're happy. Oh, no. Come on, Satan. I didn't mean to. Uh, how would I have known? Hey, let me try and make this right, huh? Look, I think we have some hot cocoa upstairs. Would you like some cocoa? Father of lies. I think there's those little marshmallows, too. Everybody loves those. Satan, oh, where are you going? Don't leave. Satan, come back. Don't be like that. Satan, I have cocoa. But, uh, he never came back, and Stephen King was made to fix his own career problem, which, as history shows, 
he couldn't. Just disappointing sale after disappointing sale. Then, uh, then he faded into obscurity. Why? Because after that encounter with Satan, all he could write were, were what, what would amount to apologies to the devil about lemonade and, and no one knew what the fuck he was talking about. I mean, it was shit he didn't, he didn't even understand. It was all just so tragic. All that talent wasted. In the end, I guess Stephen King's failed fail dealings with the devil can teach us all a lesson about life and its, and its inevitable difficulties. That, uh, that when life gives you lemons, just shut up and eat your fucking lemons. I'm kidding. I, I don't know why I went on so long with that. Uh, special thank you to my friend Alonzo Iger for the Stephen King impersonations thus far. Anytime, my man. So that's it then. Is Alonzo Dunzo? I think so. I don't know. Cool, cool, cool. So I'll just wait then? Ah, sure, man. I mean, uh, you, I mean, you don't have to. This isn't live or anything. I'm just recording it. I, I could just call you back if you mm, want to. No, it's cool. I didn't have anything going on today anyway. Besides, they just up and kicked me out of the bus depot. Banned for life. Oh, yeah? Yeah. And do you want to know why? No. No, that's okay. Just uh, just have a seat over there. Oh, um, okay. Hey, thanks again for this. I'll be over here. Just quiet. Quiet as can be, and that'll be me. Sure, sure, man. Yeah, make yourself at home. I appreciate that, man. Hey, that cheese platter I saw out in the hallway there, is that good to eat? Or or is that, like, for something special? Or Just the trash. Ah, well, know what? I'll give it a shot if it's all the same. Oh, all right, man. Uh, have at it. Uh, bathroom's upstairs. Noise, mano, mano. It looks like things are coming up Alonso today. Oh, hey, while I have you here, is uh, is Jenna around by chance? No. No, 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 no. Uh, uh, nope. No, I guess not. Yep, no, I heard. I'll just wait over here and uh, eat some cheese. All right, I'll, I'll move on now. Boom, slap, pow, schnicked. Sorry for the onomatopoeia, folks. And sorry for the ad break. You get it. We love you. Uh, no, despite not being a skyrocketing up the charts, set the world on fire debut novel, Stephen King did do pretty well. Thankfully, King's agent secured a remarkable deal by selling the paperback rights to Signet for a staggering $400,000. The more affordable softcover edition gained popularity and sold 1 million copies within its first year. Um, this success eventually led to the adaptation of the novel into the highly, highly, into the highly successful 1976 film, uh, also titled Carrie. Uh, King's story is an inspiration to all aspiring writers. It shows that even if you are rejected, you should never give up. If you have a story to tell, keep writing and resubmitting your work until you find someone who believes in it. Wear them down. <laughs> uh, with success also comes a lot of bullshit. So be prepared for that after, you know, never giving up. Um, he's had his work criticized, as all published writers have. Uh, the heaviest critique being that King's work, again, is too violent, scary, and full of dirty fucking words. Uh, think about the kids reading all the horror, Stephen. Those poor kids seeing all those no-no words in print in print, Stephen. Soon they'll be asking about them out loud at church and Bible study 
It's enough to make you want to kick the baby Jesus, Stephen. Out of frustration, of course, not pleasure. I'm not a monster, some baby Jesus-kicking monster. That's not me. See see what you've driven me to, Stephen? Just the thought of that malediction in print has turned me into a kicker of the baby Jesus, Stephen. Ban the books! Sorry, I don't know what came over me. You know, just picturing all those fucks and shits typed out to muddy the minds of children and their pure thoughts. No, seriously, I'll stop. Uh, Stephen King's worked. Stephen King's worked. He's worked hard to be banned in schools and libraries. No. Uh, His work has been banned uh, from schools and libraries. Uh, During the 1990s, four of his his books uh, turned up on the ALA list of most banned books. Cujo, coming in at number 49. Carrie, coming in at number 81. The Dead Zone at number 82. And Christine at number 95. That one is the one we'll be talking about in a few seconds. Um... When Virginia's Madison County School Board removed 21 books from school libraries on January 12, 2023, citing adult content, including famous works by Stephen King and Margaret Atwood, the Stephen King books specifically were It, Bag of Bones, and 11-22-63. In response, Awesome asked Stephen King said, Hey kids, it's your old buddy Stephen King telling you that if they ban a book in your school, haul your ass to the nearest bookstore or library ASAP and find out what they don't want you to read. That statement was shared by Atwood on social media as well. Personally, it's been my experience that people that want you to read the least want to control you the most. Just saying. Stephen King has also had his fair share of death threats from people who are offended by his work. In 1998, uh, King told Entertainment Weekly that a fan once broke into his home touting what looked like a very suspicious package. I guess the scariest thing a reader ever did was that he broke into our house and said he had a bomb, King said. Uh, It was a bunch of paper clips wired up to pencils. Despite the difficulties and criticism, Stephen King was and is famously prolific. Uh, He continues to write new novels and short stories all the time. He's written over 60 novels, including The Shining, The Stand, It, and Misery. He has also written numerous short stories, screenplays, and nonfiction books. King's work has been adapted into numerous films and television shows, including The Shining, The Stand, It, and Carrie. I won't go into all the other stuff, too much here because I have a whole fucking gift set to get through, <laughs> courtesy of my very, very generous friend, Anthony. Thanks again, man. So um, I'll be talking about them in future episodes. So King has won numerous awards for his writing, too, including the Bram Stoker Award, um, the World Fantasy Award, and the British Fantasy Award. He has also been nominated for the Pulitzer Prize That seems like something I might have heard of before. He's also a popular speaker and has given numerous lectures and interviews about his work. A beloved figure in the horror genre, he is considered one of the most important and influential authors of his generation. I will expand on his bio in future episodes. Um, He's a fascinating guy with lots of interesting angles and shit. A great writer by most measures with a lot of novels under his belt. One of which is Christine, the book I'm talking about in this fucking episode. Published in 1983, Christine is an American supernatural horror novel by Stefano Germain King. That's not his name. I don't know why I did that. Stephen King. 
you know, the guy we've been talking about early, just a second ago. Um, the story follows Arnie Cunningham, a shy teenager who buys a 1958 Plymouth Fury that possesses supernatural powers and begins killing people who stand in Arnie's way. Well, not, you find out later, not Arnie specifically, but whatever. King's idea for Christine came about back in 1978 when King was walking home one day and thinking about his dying Pinto. Wouldn't it be funny, King remembers thinking, if the little numbers on the odometer started to run backwards, and when they ran backwards, the car would get younger? That would make a funny short story. If King had to pay royalties for inspiration, that four Pinto would would fucking pay off huge. Um... It, <laughs> that Pinto, by the way, he bought with the hardcover advance for Carrie. Um, if it paid uh, royalties, it would have earned Ford a fuck ton of money since it provided the initial spark for Cujo, too. I've heard of it. In addition to being inspired by cars, uh, Stephen King is also afraid of them, too. He said, well, I'm afraid of cars and trucks. I mean, maximum overdrive is about trucks because as a child, they seem so large and I seem so small. I had the imagination... I had the same imagination then as I do now, except for a kid. Everything is harder to control. That's why they, uh, children, fall down and have scabby knees all the time. I would imagine that even my kids would scuttle behind me because they look so big and I'm... Um... I would imagine that even my kids would scuttle behind me because they look so big and on bulldozers, the, the treads look so cruel. And I always imagine that what would happen to my little fingers if they started to move over them. In an interview with a small indie media company that anyone uh, has hardly ever heard of, a little tiny company called the BBC, King said the cars were an important part of his childhood. Being able to identify makes and models was a, was a mark of pride. But he was also afraid that a car would back up over him. And he remembered news reports of people being hit by cars. Apparently, that kind of shit tends to leave a bit of an, an imprint on a kid. <laughs> Who knew? Uh, Christine is a basic example of Stephen King's work, with its blend of horror and suspense and coming-of-age themes. The novel's been praised for its characters and its suspenseful plot and its exploration of the dark side of human nature. Uh, Christine received mixed reviews from critics upon its publication, um, some praised King's ability to create a suspenseful and atmospheric story, while others found the novel to be too long and slow-paced. Yeah, I, I could see that. Which I would kind of agree with. It, yeah. Um, but uh, there's a caveat to that, that for me, personally, and I'll explain later. In a positive review for the New York Times, Christopher Lehman Haupt called Christine a terrifically scary book and praised King's ability to create a sense of dread that is almost palpable. However, in a review for the Washington Post, why am I doing this? Jonathan Yardley called Christine a long, slow, and ultimately unsatisfying novel and criticized King for his tendency to over-explain everything. Despite the mixed reviews, Christine was a commercial success, selling over one million copies in its first year of publication, the novel was also adapted into a successful film in 1983. 
Why did why did I talk like that? I don't know. Should I keep? I'll keep. Christine, <laughs> what the fuck am I doing? Christine is a story about obsession, possession, and the dangers of letting your passions get the best of you. It is a cautionary tale about the power of evil and the importance of standing up to it. The story begins in the backwoods of an area outside of Pittsburgh with a man raping a 1958 Plymouth Fury. She asked for it. He yells at the locals, dragging his half-naked body off the car's exhaust pipe. Look at that silver dart styling. You can't tell me that Golden Commando V8 and Torschneier ride suspension system weren't screaming, Bone me, Jasper, bone me. Let me go, you degenerate shitters. I want to tap that smooth transition and push-button torque flight transmission in its ass. Ah, uh, no. <laughs> No, that's not how it starts. Though I'm not going to lie, there are parts of the novel uh, where I was waiting for that for it to take that kind of turn. No, the real story starts in a little town called Libertyville, Pennsylvania in 1978. A little aside here before we get started. This setting is different from a lot of the other uh, a lot of other settings in Stephen King's books because it's not set in Maine, which they usually are. Um, instead, it's a fictional town in Pennsylvania. And why is that? Although there is some reference made to the fact that Arnie Cunningham, on some of his fireworks runs for Will Darnell, goes through the town of Stovington, Vermont, which is where Jack Torrance from The Shining taught and where the Plague Center was in the stand. The thing is that it takes place in Pittsburgh. Christine is dedicated to famous Pittsburgh filmmaker George Romero, for whom King wrote Creep Show, which is so far from the New England setting of the other stories. Um, the books that I've written have been located either in Maine or in Colorado for the most part. You sound a lot like him, Alonzo. Thanks. It's the only natural talent I have, aside from being able to stand in bushes without being noticed. Well, okay then. Huh. So the story starts out in Libertyville, PA, in 1978, with a high school kid named Dennis Gilder recounting the story of an ominous foreshadowed event and the months that lead up to it regarding his friend, Arnie Cunningham. A friend, by the way, that he continuously refers to as a loser in a myriad of creative, long-winded ways, then describes the ways in which he's physically repulsive, you know, to back his claims of him being a loser, as a good friend does. He describes him as having acne, and uh, he wears black-rimmed glasses. He's greasy, and so on, and so forth, and a, a loser, again. All these descriptions are, uh, are by his best friend, his, uh, his only friend. Oh, and there's a sprinkling of Arnie being very smart and mechanically inclined in there, so you don't think he's a dumbass, complete loser, even though he's continually called a, a loser. So, things are off to a great start. Uh, Dennis has a car of his own. It's a Dodge Duster in the book, but a Dodge, a Dodge Charger in the movie, I think. Anyway, the make and model aren't important. They've very little to do with the story, just that Arnie bums rides off of uh, Dennis, and he's quasi-jealous of his car. He brings it up sometimes, but I guess just doesn't have a car of his own. Dennis and Arnie are on their way home after a hard, I don't know why I stuck on that so long. Dennis and Arnie are on their way home after a hard day at work doing some manual labor at their summer job. Some construction gig that really doesn't matter too much. Either way. Anyway, it's it's 
just there because it's Arnie's source of money for a while. They're engaged in some banter when Arnie spots a rusty pile of shit car taking up the space in front of an, an equally unattractive pile of shit of a house. Uh, Dennis clocked the car earlier and tried his best to put Arnie off of it. Come on, man, it's a rust hulk. <laughs> if I'm being honest, it's not even worth fucking Arnie, he exclaimed. Okay, he didn't say that, but but he does try to talk him out of it. <sighs> he does try to talk him out of even going back to check on it. Uh, unfortunately, he doesn't talk him out of it. And they pull a Yui and pull up to the pile of shits, house and car. This is how Christine, the car, enters the picture. Christine began life on the assembly line in Detroit, Michigan in 1957. She was built to order, according to the specifications of Roland D. LeBay, the shitty character who owns the house. Um, that shitty Christine is sitting in front of. Uh, he custom ordered the car uh, when he walked into Norman Cobb Plymouth that same year. When she arrived at the dealership in September 1957, Christine had six miles on her odometer and the new car smell inside of her. That was just about the best smell in the whole world. As Roland Bay would say, the bestest smell is pussy, is what he would also say. <sighs> the curmudgeonly creepy back brace wearing weirdo that he uh, is Roland LeBay who owns the ship pile of a house at the ship pile of a car Christine is currently in front of in the book. Um, he would later recall that smell. Uh, she remained with LeBay through uh, for 21 years, and through the through the last of those years, the car was left to rot in his garage. That is, until he, as we later find out, in his decrepit asshole state, got a feeling, uh, or something, to put the car out on the front lawn with a for sale sign on it. He does that, and a couple of days later, greasy loser Arnie Cunningham and his insulting friend Dennis Gilder pass by in 1978. At that time, Christine was a decaying wreck, as I've been saying, a pile of shit, and Dennis Gilder, uh, Arnie's insulting friend noted several major problems with, with the car merely by looking at it. The worst problem being a large puddle under the transmission. Never a good sign when it comes to buying any kind of car when there are puddles present when you buy them. Um, which, uh, just, just, that's just a, a tip, despite my not being a pro in any way, shape, or form. Um, if a car is um, leaving parts of itself or liquid, uh, from that dripping from inside of it, don't buy it. Arnie disregarded this sound uh, pro tip advice and uh, Dennis, Dennis's advice, um, which was pr pretty reasonable, I think. And uh, he decided to buy the turd of a car anyway after noticing the uh, for sale sign. LeBay had set the price at $250, which Dennis rightfully points out is far too much. But Arnie, entranced by the car for some fucking reason that's never fully explained in any meaningful way. Um, sorry, just a little venting there. Um, Arnie couldn't afford to pay the full price up front because it's 1978 when $250 could, <sighs> could buy you a whole ass car, you know, instead of today when it might buy maybe some groceries. It's around this point in the story that LeBay tells the guys the car's name, which, of course, we know is Christine. Arnie falls... Sorry. Arnie start, 
Arnie starts to fall under the spell that is Christine, and he offers a $25 deposit to hold the car until he can get up the rest of the scratch. And LeBay agrees agrees to those terms um, for Arnie to return the next day with the rest of the money. Meanwhile, Christine gets moved to the garage, back into the garage, and LeBay has her oil changed at barely any cost, because, yeah... Arnie frantically gets the money together to the to the befuddlement of Dennis, who just can't understand why Arnie wants the fucking car so bad. It's a rolling piece of shit. They go back the next day and discover that the car is no longer on the front lawn. Arnie erupts in fury to the surprise of Dennis, who um is just gonna be conf- he's just gonna be a confused jock the rest of the time. Not really sure what the fuck's going on. That's just his character. Arnie runs up to LeBay's house, raising hell. The decrepit weirdo calmly explains that he had simply relocated it and did a shitty oil change on it and stuff. And he invites Arnie inside to complete the necessary paperwork. While they're indoors, Dennis, overcome by morbid curiosity, approaches the car, sits behind the wheel, and for a moment goes on what can probably be conservatively described as a a free acid trip. He glimpsed the car, the lawn, and even the street outside as they appeared during Christine's glory days, when gasoline was inexpensive, racial tensions ran high, and milk was delivered by perverts. Did, Did you know about milkmen? According to a study I found from Princeton, Only 11% of milkmen since the very inception of milk delivery in the 1700s to its demise in the 1990s, 11% of them were normal, God-fearing people. Startling, isn't it? That means a majority were, of course, atheist, sexual, deviant perverts preying on the neighborhoods and molesting their milk and other fine dairy products. I don't know where I'm going with that. Sorry. It's all a twisted horrible lie getting into the wreck of a car uh dennis has a bizarre nostalgia hallucination um so as you can imagine uh, that's an unnatural occurrence and a rather frightening one at that especially for dennis who's confused about just about everything he instantly formed a dislike for the car and uh he quickly exited uh, the car as one would when they have a free acid trip back to the 50s or 60s. I, however, would view tripping out in the car for free as a bonus. As long as it doesn't happen while you're driving, what harm is being done? So you time warp back to the early 60s a little. I mean, think of the money you're saving on dropping acid. I mean, you know, it's the 70s. Acid's still around. Well, I'm pretty sure. Hell, maybe, maybe you can even start a business. Five bucks a, quote, Ride, unquote. You know what I'm saying? Christine could pay for herself in no time. You know what I'm saying? Anyway, back to the story. After accumulating a mileage of 97,432 miles, Christine reluctantly departed from LeBay's residence. Resistance. That's what I wanted to say. Um, She reluctantly departed from LeBay's residence with her new owner. Reluctantly. Being... She didn't start... She, being the car didn't start and seemed to need a jump start, 
then oddly building up voltage out of nowhere and starting. Dennis expressed his concerns about the predicament with his friend and what he has gotten into, provoking LeBay's anger and leading to Dennis being called a quote-unquote shitter, unquote, which will be le dernier mot for, uh, for Arnie. And he will use it whenever he has a fit about Christine, calling everybody shitters. What an awkward thing to call anyone. Shitter? What the fuck? Yes, I do. Usually once a day. Yeah, on average. Everyone's a shitter. If they're not, they need to see a doctor. As, as LeBay tearfully watched his beloved car, the one and only thing he ever purchased brand new drive away, Dennis lamented the situation. In the months that followed, Arnie overtook the task of restoring Christine at Darnell's, a local DIY auto repair shop that fronts for a pretty obvious criminal piece of shit named Darnell. The restoration done to Christine is executed in a kind of haphazard, completely nonsensical manner. Everybody notices that Arnie is fixing shit in no particular order and in no logical way. Normally, there would be a reasonable progression, you know. You work on the transmission of the exhaust system, then maybe you try to get the engine straight before moving on to other areas of the car. Arnie seems to be jumping from one random area to another, often not finishing it entirely. Like fixing the broken antenna, half the grill, and getting one fender repainted while the Rest is a rusting blanket of ass. He repairs the upholstery, but not the dashboard. Stuff like that. It's revealed later that Arnie isn't really sure what he has repaired and restored himself and what seems to have just magically been done without him. He can't remember buying a new windshield to replace the old one or doing any bodywork. Yet it's all fixed. Spooky. Throughout the uh, process of fixing up the car, Arnie becomes more withdrawn, yet weirdly, also more confident and self-assured, coinciding with Christine's physical transformation. He will eventually convince a girl to be near him without throwing up shortly, because, as relayed by his best friend, he's a disgusting fucking loser. Things appear to be turning around for Arnie, despite his growing, creepy, overly obsessed attitude towards his car. Oh my god. I almost forgot to mention the parking problems. Huh. The reason Arnie, who isn't 18 yet, has to keep the car at a garage run by a skeevy Darnell, and not at his, I don't know, maybe his parents' house or wherever that's close by, it's because his parents forbid it. Forbade it? Anyway, they don't like the fact that he used his money that was earmarked for college to buy a car earmarked for a fucking landfill. They have a big fight about it, which apparently it's the first time something like that has ever happened, according to Dennis. Fighting with his parents, that is. Um, you know. So, Arnie's forced to find parking accommodations for the shit heap at Darnell's House of Sketch. Naturally, things start to go downhill for everyone involved. Mom, Dad, Arnie, Dennis, the whole lot. Arnie grows more distant, as teens often do when they obsess over a car that tries to steal their soul. Later, Dennis learns from George LeBay, Roland's brother, after Roland's funeral. Yes, yes, the scummy back brace wearing weirdo that owned Christine first, he fucking dies. 
As it happens, Roland's brother has stories, and they aren't great. Back in the day, Roland's young daughter, Roland, Roland, Roland. Back in the day, Roland's young daughter, uh, fucking Limp biscuit. Back in the day, Roland's young daughter had tragically choked to death on a hamburger in the back seat of the car. <laughs> Failed to mention that when the, uh, when the money changed hands. In addition, Roland's wife, devastated by the loss of her daughter and Roland's reluctance to get rid of the car after their daughter died in it, apparently took her own life inside of the vehicle that is Christine, through carbon monoxide poisoning. Yikes. Christine, too? Happiness and sanity? Zero. Does Dennis tell Arnie any of this shit? <laughs> well, no. Why would he? He's been a great friend so far. Why break a streak? He figures Arnie wouldn't want to hear what he has to say anyway. Because, you know, that's what you do when you have information. You, you kind of just assume no one wants to hear it. Because, you know, by this point, Arnie has a full-on boner for Christine and isn't hearing reason any fucking more. Arnie is nearing the completion of his restoration of Christine when Lee Cabot, an attractive student, enrolls at the school. To everyone's surprise, she decides to date Arnie. And after... <laughs> yeah, I don't, I don't see it. Anyway, after, after uh, Christine's all fixed up, Arnie figures he'll bring the car home. Uh, he's thought that the objection to parking the car at home was due to the state that the car was in. Now the car looks sweet. What's the problem? Arnie's mother, as it turns out, could have given two shits as to what it looked like. She just straight up despises the car and forbids him from parking it at their house. More parking problems. So many parking problems. They have a lose-their-shit argument over parking. Again. This time, Arnie's father, Michael, takes his son for a drive and pr provides him with a plan to park Christine at the airport and even gives him a 30-day parking pass because he's expecting Arnie to only use the car when absolutely necessary. This leads to another minor argument about, well, parking. A lot of this book is about parking disputes among the characters. I'm not kidding. Lots of pages. Lots of page real estate devoted to it. Well... Shit, for instance, there's a bit early on when Arnie is driving Christine away from LeBay's house for the first time and a tire goes flat because Christine's a piece of shit and she don't want to go from Daddy LeBay. Um, he pulls it over in front of a random house. Uh, Arnie does. Pulls Christine over in front of a random house and the owner of the house, uh, some white trash lady, uh, comes out and tells them they can't park that piece of shit in front of their house. Dennis has to run and get a new tire while Arnie babysits the car. and It's a whole thing. Arnie argues with the lady whose house it's in front of. Because he's like, it's, it's only going to be here for a few minutes. She's like, I don't want that piece of shit here. Don't park it in front of my house. And just on and on. It's, <sighs> then there's a weird part where he's talking with her kids for some reason. I don't even know why that's in there. Then... Dennis shows up with a brand new tire, just as uh, the lady's husband, who had shown up during his absence, um, decides to almost clock Arnie in his fucking face because of, yep, parking. But that was way earlier. Nope. So now we're post-ish restoration, and Arnie has taken his dad's advice and is parking his car at the airport. He's also trying to get some ass at this point. Ass from someone who does not like the car. This would be Lee, 
She's a big deal in the story. She's Arnie's kind of girlfriend, maybe. All this stuff happens over the course of a few months, so I don't know what constituted a full-on girlfriend in the 1970s, going out for maybe like a few weeks? Or a month? Second base? Hand stuff? Not sure. Depending on your age, ask your parents, or, or maybe your grandparents. Hell, maybe even your great-grandparents. Hey, hey, great-granny, um, did the title of boyfriend and girlfriend become official after you started doing hand stuff? Gross. During a date in the car, Lee almost chokes on a hamburger. She becomes convinced that Christine is somehow involved uh, with the choking and uh, wants her dead especially after noticing the dashboard lights transforming, kind of, into glaring green eyes when Arnie tries to save her by slapping her on the back. A move she points out that he definitely knows does not work because there's a poster at school or something. I don't know. Regardless, she is correct. Uh, the car does want her dead. <laughs> Fortunately, during the choking incident, a hitchhiker rescues Lee, by pulling her out of the car and performing a Heimlich maneuver. Despite Arnie's protests, Lee continues to feel like she's competing with Christine for his affection. To which Arnie proclaims, proclaims defensively, Look! Okay? I only experimented with Christine's tailpipe a few times, okay? It was weird at first, but, but I'm not going to lie. It got better, which is more than I can say for you. Okay. No, he didn't say that. But, uh... But he's real close, real close with the car. It's weird. After Arnie starts parking at the airport, a guy named Buddy Repperton, a cruel bully, who a cruel bully, those are words, both of them, um, a cruel bully who uh, Arnie and Dennis get expelled earlier uh, from, get expelled from school earlier in the story um, because he pulled a switchblade during a fight. Uh, he finds out, yep where Arnie's car is parked. So, like, uh, another parking problem. So, being the typical bully muscle drunk bully person, Buddy pays a visit to Christine, accompanied by his equally drunk bully hangers-on. They get into uh, the secured parking lot via the guy who is their drunk bully friend, um, who's watching it, who's also one of the hangers-on. Then uh, they commit to beating up a car. Bats and shit. Like, just going at it. You, you don't really get to... You don't really get the play-by-play, but it's it's bad. They uh, they even go so far as to take a dump on the dashboard. You know, like a... Like a shit. Like a, like a shit. Like a, like a big dumpy shit. Uh, classic car vandalism stuff. Straight from the car vandalism playbook. Uh, were there to be one, you can be sure that there would be a chapter on taking a shit. An instruction on where to put it to get the best vandalism result. I'm sorry. Stuck with that for way too long. Moving on. They tear Christine up pretty bad. The next day or thereabouts, Arnie takes mostly girlfriend Lee up to the old airport to get Christine to motor around to do some Christmas shopping. And what does Arnie find? Well, a wrecked ass beat to shit Christine. I, I just told you a second ago about the beating up of the shit. Remember, keep up. Witnessing the complete destruction of Christine triggers intense anger in Arnie, leading to the dissolution of his relationship with Lee. She gave Arnie uh, an ultimatum. It's, it's the car or me, you know, kind of choice. And of course, the car won out. That tailpipe, 
hot. Then one by one, the members of Buddy's uh, beat up the car gang. They they start dying. The gore in this, the, the first scene of um, the first member of the gang dying is pretty vivid. I wasn't so much scared as... I could read it Jesus, if you want. Jesus, Alonzo. I forgot you were here. I'm all done with the cheese. Holy fuck. Holy fuck, you ate that? It wasn't so bad. If you ate around the fur. Oh, man, I'm... I don't know what to say. You were going to read a quote from the book just now, right? Y- yeah, I was. The, the part where Moochie dies. Are you all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm fine. I eat weird shit all the time. My mom used to say I had a cast iron stomach because I could eat just about anything you put in front of me. She said I could probably become one of those professional eater guys, you know? The kind that eat bicycles and light bulbs and tires and stuff. She said I could probably make a career out of it if I could stop masturbating for five minutes. Wow. That was a lot of information. Ah, I think that came out wrong. I didn't mean masturbating as a career. Could you imagine getting paid to do that all day? I'd make a fortune doing what I love. So I could read that part if you want. What? That part about Moochie dying. I can read that if you want. Uh, all right, man. Sure, I'll just, uh, I don't know, find some not furry... Food. Jesus Christ. Cool, man. Hey, if you have a Coke, could I have one? It might help with the aftertaste. Sure. I'll be right back. All right, so here's the gross hit-and-run part in the book. I don't know if I should say quote or not, but, uh, screw it. Here it is. The Plymouth hit him squarely, still accelerating, breaking Moochie Welch's back, and knocking him spang out of his engineer's boots. He was thrown 40 feet into the brick siding of the little market, Again, narrowly missing a plunge through a plate glass window. The force of his strike was hard enough to cause him to rebound into the street again, leaving a splash of blood on the brick like an ink blot. A picture of it would appear the next day on the front page of the Libertyville Journal Standard. Christine reversed, screeched to a skidding sliding stop, and roared forward again. Moochie lay near the curbing, trying to get up. He couldn't get up. Nothing seemed to work. All the signals were scrambled. Bright white light washed over him. No, he whispered through a mouthful of broken teeth. N- the car roared forward and over him. Change flew everywhere. Moochie was pulled and rolled first one way and then the other. As Christine reversed into the street again, she stood there, engine revving and falling off to a rich idol, then revving again. She stood there as if thinking. Then she came at him again. She hit him, jumped the curb, skidded around, and then reversed again, thumping back down. She screamed forward and back and forward. Her headlights glared. Her exhaust pipes jetted hot blue smoke. The thing in the street no longer looked like a human being. It looked like a scattered bundle of rags. Nice work, Alonzo. Hey, thanks, man. Is that my Coke? Yep, it's all yours. I'll take it over from here, man. Oh, definitely. I can't do anything right now anyway. That cheese is starting to hit, if you know what I mean. Oh, yeah, right. Uh, You said the John is upstairs, right? Yep, Uh, top of the stairs. Take a a left. I'm going to go pop a super duke into the gaping mouth of the porcelain god. Well, well then... Uh, (laughs) I just hope I make it. You might be getting some custom artwork in your hallway. Okay. (laughs) God. So Moochie is the, uh, is the first to bite it in Christine's revenge tour. The others equally meet their demise at the hands of the reconstructed Christine. Equally meaning 
run down in various horrific ways. Additionally, those who showed hostility towards Arnie or Christine also suffered the same fate. The police launched investigation into uh, murders and gross suspicious suspicious of Arnie. However, the car seems to act autonomously uh, when he is away. Um, There's an ambiguous thing in this book as to what Christine's actual deal is, because at different times, it's the ghost of the back brace shitters LeBay, um, the original owner driving the car, but is invisible because he's a dead ghost thing, as ghosts tend to be. Or is it the car itself that has its own spirit that manipulates people? Like, is the car itself evil and has changed LeBay and Arnie? It's never never really cleared up too well. And is the ghost taking over Arnie or is, or is it the car changing him? There's a point in the story where Arnie is starting to look like LeBay. His back gets hurt. So he has to wear a back brace and all the other characters notice that he seems a lot older than, uh, than looking, uh, than looking, uh, his actual age, which is like 17. So who, so who's doing what to him? Who knows? Stephen King doesn't even know for sure. In an interview, he says, Was it LeBay or was it the car? I understand that their answer is that it was the car. In fact, it may be, and I'm just guessing, that LeBay isn't anywhere near as sinister as he is in the book. I think that in the book, there is the suggestion that it's probably LeBay rather than the car. When the film people came to me, I said, Look, this is your decision. You decide what you're going to do with the story. That quote was from an interview referencing the film. Hey, thanks for jumping in there, Alonzo. No problem at all, my man. By the way, and in case you were wondering that dump I took, grade A, my friend, grade A. Okay, Alonzo. Seriously, not too smooth as to dole out some sting ring, but also not too rocky as to mar the road. Know what I mean? What the fuck, Alonzo? Too much, too much. Gotcha. I tend to do that. I'm sorry. I apologize for real man. Hey, I'll just sit over by the door there if you need me. I'll be quiet. Plus, I I think I'm all farted out anyway. So no sneak attacks from the South. Know what I mean? I got it. I got it. Yes. Thank you, Alonzo. Just just hang out. Just hang out. I'll let you know if there are more lines, okay? Uh, Wow. Um, Hmm. Wow. Getting back, uh, getting back to it, uh, for me, <sighs> that seems like something, uh, something was half-assed in the execution of what was the motivating force behind Christine. It's like somewhere someone missed something in a draft and it, and it just got baked in. It's weird because it, if it's the ghost of the guy, why is Arnie talking to the car all nice? Like it's a girl. And if it's the car, what the fuck is the ghost doing? Getting pissed, driving around and plowing people over. It's like once you notice it, it's hard to shake. Either way, in the story, the cops really start to hone in on Arnie, who progressively gives less and less of a fuck about anything. Despite finding paint chips at the crime scenes that match Christine's color, the police find no evidence of damaged bloodstains or any other damage to the car itself, uh, because Christine supernaturally repairs herself after each attack. Yet they know something is up, you know? So they start to dig around and connect him to the bad skeevy guy, garage owner, uh, Darnell. It seems Darnell has, has been up to some bad shit for a while. And they and they see a way to get Arnie because Arnie's been helping him. And, and they kind of suspect he's been... Uh, they kind of figure Ar- Arnie's been murdering people with his car, but they don't know how. And Darnell, who has been 
doing some across-state-lines illegal shit like running coke and cigarettes. Um, So they set up a sting, and people get busted. It's a whole organized crime plot thing inside of a horror novel. It's wild. It really should be made into a limited TV series. That's what I was referring to way back there. It would be outstanding if they did it right. Though, the narrative structure would have to be messed with as it's... It switches from first person to third person back to first person. It's not too noticeable when you're when you're reading, but I can't imagine it translating very well if they did a like a series. I mean, they could probably work it out. The reason for the narrative flip on and off is because Stephen King got stuck. He said in an interview with Jean-Marc Lofficer, Lofficer, Lofficer. L-O-F-F-I-C-I-E-R. Lofficier. I don't know. Um, I've been referencing uh, that interview a good bit in this episode. Uh, He said... Because I got in a box. That's really the only reason. It almost killed the book. It sat on a shelf for a long time while I walked around in sort of a daze and said, you know, uh, this is really cute. How did you do this? It was like when you paint a room... And you really do end up in a corner saying, ah, heck, look what I did. There's no door at this end of the room. I had Dennis telling the story, and he was supposed to tell the whole story. But then he got in a football accident and was in the hospital while things were going on that he couldn't see. Then for a long time, I tried to narrate that second part in terms of what he was hearing, hearsay evidence, almost like depositions. But that didn't work. I tried to do it a number of different ways, and finally I said, let's cut through it. The only way to do this is to do it in the third person. I tried to leave enough clues so that when the reader comes out of it, he'll feel that it's almost like Dennis pulling a Truman Capote. It's almost like a non-fiction novel. I think that it's still a first-person narration. And if you read that second part over, you'll see it. It's just masked, like reportage. And... Unfortunately, that's where I have to leave it, folks. I I can't give up the whole story. You know this. I'll have a link to the book in the description to get the book. So read it. Definitely check it out, because while it does have its flaws, I think it deserves not only a thorough and satisfying read, but also probably its own goddamn series. Seriously, like I said before, like a limited one that would uh, live on one of the streaming services forever, you know? Uh, Because there's there's a lot going on in this book. It's... It's a lot. There's a police drama thing, supernatural shit, obviously relationship shit, uh, cars, lots of uh, hit and run action. There's there's a lot going on. Like I, at one point, Christine smashes her way into a fucking house. How fucking cool would that be? And then you wonder why why people don't escape from the car so easy. I don't know. Anyway, it, it would make a good series. Now the movie. That's a whole other deal. It's a little and a lot different from the book. Whether that's good or bad is up to the viewer. I liked it myself. When I was a kid and I saw it on HBO, I thought it was more badass than scary. I don't really understand the idea of being scared by a car. I I, I don't get it. I guess if you're traumatized by a car, it's understandable. but, But for the average person, I don't know. Still, that movie was awesome. The car's driving around on fucking fire. It's fucking rebuilding itself, which, by the way, was done by reverse-filming plastic copies of the original car parts being dented using air suction then playing it forward. You know, for the movie. Genius. So to me, the movie is cool as shit. But some people don't agree. 
one of them being Stephen King. Here's a quote. Watching that movie was like being forced to eat rusted nails while watching my grandma have sex with a bus filled with... Jesus Christ, Alonzo, what the fuck is that? I was ad-libbing. I was going to read the quote right after. No, 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 no ad-libbing, man. No ad-libbing. Just stick to the script. Okay, okay, just the script. I mean, I feel like the material is underserved with just a straight read-through, and personally, I feel stunted creatively, but yeah, whatever. I'll just read the regular old script, like regular old Alonzo, man. Thank you. Should I finish the, the ad-lib I was doing? The listeners might wonder what what I was going to say at, at the end of the... No, they'll uh, be fine without the rest of it. Every kind of sex toy on Earth. Or finish it, I guess. Sorry, man. I had to let it out. It was like holding in your pee, but like in your brain, like an ad-lib brain pee, but for thoughts. I, I get it. Or like a fart. Here's the quote. It's from a book called The Films of Stephen King by Anne Lloyd. Quote, I thought Christine would be a hit. It seemed such a natural. And I wasn't the only one, you know. The people at Columbia obviously felt that way. Yaiki. They rushed it into production. It seemed like it should just be there, and it just wasn't. I went to Christine with Kirby McCauley, my agent. People just sat there. Nobody catcalled or laughed, and nobody was getting into it either. It was like this dead engine. Every now and then it would cough and splutter a bit. There's some excitement that he, Carpenter, can generate. When the car's going along the road and it's chasing these people, that's pretty good. Unquote. Kind of harsh, Stephen. The film was directed by John Carpenter and stars Keith Gordon as Arnie Cunningham, and Christine is played by a Plymouth Fury. Uh, Why did Stephen King choose a 58 Plymouth Fury? Well, he's quoted in an interview as saying, Because they're almost totally forgotten cars. They were the most mundane 50s car that I could remember. I didn't want a car that already had a legend attached to it, like the 50s Thunderbird, the Ford Galaxies, etc. You know how these things grow. Some of the Chevrolets, for example, were supposed to have been legendary door suckers. On the other hand, nobody ever talked about the Plymouth products. And I thought, well, besides Lee Iacocca gave me a million bucks. Seriously, I don't know how Chrysler feels about Christine any more than I know how the Ford company feels about Cujo, in which a woman is stranded in a Pinto. But they should feel happy, because it's a pretty lively car, and it lasts a long time. It's like a Timex watch. It takes a licking and goes on ticking. Well done, sir. Can I throw in an ad-lib? No. Moving on. The film adaptation of Christine is also well-regarded, and uh, with many critics praising Carpenter's direction and Gordon's performance as Arnie, the film has become a cult classic, and is often cited as one of the best Stephen King adaptations. I'd put it up there with Pet Cemetery as far as quality goes, though maybe not as scary. Seriously, it's just a car. Um, you'll never compete with that Achilles heel cutting scene in, in Pet Cemetery. Whew. Though it is pretty awesome when it reconstructs itself, and that fucking burning car scene where he just kind of fucking runs over the uh, the poor man's John Travolta. <sighs> Imagine how much you'd save on insurance if the car reconstructed itself. Oh, man. That's a whole other thing that got me thinking. Where do all the replacement t- materials come from? I mean, when the car is bashing its way into a twisted heap, trying to, and in most cases, succeeding in killing people, where does the material to undo the damage come from? You can imagine the metal unbending itself, sure. But a shattered window and and all the metal bits that fly off wherever, whenever you're hitting things and and you keep driving, seriously, is 
Is it the car moving material around itself? And if so, wouldn't that mean that the car would eventually start to, you know, I don't know, get shorter or something or not work right? You know, because there's less and less material to work with. Why do I do this to myself? I'm overthinking it, I think. Maybe maybe I need to be afraid of cars to really get it. If it'll help, I could run you over with a car if if you want for, like, research or something, maybe. No, I'll just end up dead before I had a chance to be afraid of cars. Yeah, that sounds right. Uh, uh, plus, I'd have to borrow your car to do it, so you'd probably recognize it and see me trying to run you down anyway. You have a very interesting mind, Alonzo. I think it might be the cheese. Thank you for listening to this episode of Elton Reads Book Week. If you liked it, please consider contributing to the Patreon for it. The link is in the description. You can find more content over there, and we can talk one-on-one. And you can help me pick books for future episodes and all that stuff. You can also buy the book uh, that this episode uh, is about and uh, any of the other episodes in the special Amazon link in the description. I get a little kickback from Amazon if you do. Buy the book and let Jeff Bezos, Bezos, Bezosos give me some fucking money. I'd appreciate that. If you're not able to contribute that way, why not just share the podcast with a friend or group or social media thing? All of those. Liking and subscribing helps as well, because it bumps you up in the algorithms, you know, and all that shit on the internets. And it gets the word out. Spreads the word. Um, you know. And you can just do that on Facebook. Share the link or whatever. You can do all that. And I appreciate the shit out of that. You can follow the podcast and all the social media stuff as well. You can share that too. That link uh, to all of those will be in the description as well. But above all else, thank you for listening. I personally truly appreciate it. Oh, and please, please read a book this week. Okay? Don't let them die out. Thank you. Thank you.